Hey there, it's Jeff Benjamin with Investment News and the Investment News Podcast, along with my colleague, uh, Bruce Kelly. How you doing, Bruce? I'm good, Jeff. How you doing today? Doing fantastic. Another beautiful sunny day here in North Carolina. And on today's podcast, we have a special guest, our colleague from Washington, D.C., Mark Sheff. Mark is our uh, Washington, D.C. reporter. He knows all things regulatory and political and sports. And uh, Mark, how you doing? Welcome aboard. Doing well. Thanks for having me, Jeff. And thank you, Bruce. It's great to be here. Sheffy is a superstar, right? And his title, I believe, is senior reporter with Investment News. That's right. I- we call him the Sheffinator or Sheffy. <laughs> he answers to just about anything. He's, he's very well trained. <laughs> Hey, Mark, I got one question for you. Absolutely. The uh, I know you're a big sports fan. I wasn't joking about that. Sure. What are your thoughts on the name of that Washington football team? I know we're not supposed to say the word Redskins, so I'm not going to say Redskins. But what is the what is your prediction for the name of that team that used to be called the Redskins? Indeed. I, I do have a, a prediction. Before I get to that, though, I realized when the team announced that it was going to change its nickname, that even though I've attended at least one game for almost 20 years every season, I didn't have one piece of Redskins paraphernalia. So I bought a mask, a Redskins mask, uh, <laughs> which I'm not going to wear, but I'm going to keep in the closet yes. just as a uh, reminder of the, of the uh, now departed, thankfully, Redskins era. I'm not sure this is the odds on favorite, but the – the nickname I prefer is Red Tails, which uh, refers to the Tuskegee Airmen, which would be a terrific homage to that group of black pilots who fought in World War II. And it also is uh, useful uh, for headline writing. For instance, uh, uh, Washington Post, the Washington Post Sports Desk could say uh, in late October, another season tails off. Uh, oh, or, uh, or, um, gotcha. <laughs> you know, uh, skins, okay. uh, sorry, uh, the they got <laughs> Washington, their tails whooped. <laughs> uh, yes. Washington, tails get kicked, uh, right. Or something. Uh, yeah. Washington, uh, departed giant stadium, uh, not giant stadium, uh, whatever it's called up there in New Jersey, um, w- with its tail tails between its legs. So you, you could, you could have a lot of fun. And also it's important, uh, to have a, a two, um, syllable nickname for the, Washington team because then it would fit in nicely to the fight song, All right. which requires two syllables. Tails that, get plucked. You, you have yeah. put a lot of thought into that, Mark, as usual, which is what <laughs> Mark does. Uh, and with that, we're going to move into our, our first segment here, ESG, Environmental, Social, and Governance Investing. I, Mark, you, I know you've been writing about this and following it. The regulatory bodies there in D.C. are are doing things that seem to be getting a little bit under your skin. They're not allowing these some of these investment strategies to be as easily available inside retirement plans. Am I getting that right? Is that a good summation? You are. Uh, we are taping this uh, on uh, the deadline day for comments on the Department of Labor's proposal uh, for selecting investments for retirement accounts. It's also known as the ESG proposal because it focuses on essentially putting more pressure on planned fiduciaries when they decide to put ESG investments in a plan or to use ESG as a way to evaluate plans. 
it's an aggressive proposal that has drawn a lot of skepticism, including, interestingly enough, from the Insured Retirement Institute. Just before we got on the phone here, I noticed in their news release about their comment letter, uh, they said IRI urges DOL to withdraw ESG proposal. Now, IRI and other insurance uh, trade associations are generally conservative le- leaning and generally supportive of Republicans, and, and you've got them telling a Republican DOL to drop it. Mm-hmm. And I believe but, we're Mar- going Mark, to, this is Bruce. Yeah. Let me just interrupt for a second. What? What? I mean, is it that, that the Trump administration and the Republicans find socially conscious investing not appropriate for investors, or is it that they don't like the concept? of socially conscious investing and putting money into green type of funds. It just seems like a battlefield in the fund business that doesn't need to be fought over. What's the thinking behind this? The thinking at DOL is that a fiduciary's role is to attain as high a return as possible for the retirement account, period. That's the only goal it should have. And in fact, the DOL proposal warns, and you'll like this word, Bruce, as a former English teacher, it warns against non-pecuniary goals. That is, don't let goals that have nothing to do with financial return get in the way of, of making your investment decisions. In fact, just real quick, I'll tell you, the proposal says this, the department is concerned that the growing emphasis on ESG investing may be prompting ERISA plan fiduciaries to make investment decisions for purposes distinct from providing benefits to participants and beneficiaries and defraying reasonable expenses of administering the plan. So in other words, they're saying, if it doesn't have to do with the bottom line and only the bottom line, don't do it. And most observers, most experts are saying that's going to chill ESG investing in retirement accounts. Well, any kind of fund, Jeff, right, has to be teed up to be in retirement accounts or it's not going to get traction. I mean, what's the number? It's half of assets in the United States are held uh, by retail investors are held in their IRAs or their 401ks, right? So you have to right. you have to be on that platform in order to get traction with investors, right? Most retail investors have the bulk of their investments inside their retirement accounts and right to look at this from a different perspective, that's why there's a big push to have these in there because ESG investments is a popular strategy and people who run ESG strategies want to get a piece of that action. But also, you got to give the DOL a little bit of credit because they're kind of dealing with the lowest common denominator when they get to these plans. I mean, we write stories weekly, almost daily about lawsuits in retirement plans. Yes, we do. And if you're sponsoring these plans, you wouldn't have to add these things anyway, even if they were available or could be made available. But a lot of times there are a lot of things that could be made available inside retirement plans, 401k plans, that the, the plan sponsors, just the companies just won't allow them because they think it's going to lead to some kind of a fiduciary challenge. The DOL thing, I know this thing's been kicked around back and forth for a while, and I know it becomes a little bit of a political football, but they have to set parameters somewhere. And the fact is, if you're an investor and you want to invest your retirement money or any of your money in ESG strategies, you can open up your own brokerage account often through your company 401k plan, or you can open up a separate IRA. 
I mean, it's it, it's not just go to Fidelity. Just go to What's Fidelity that? or Vanguard and open up a separate yeah, account. Yeah, exactly. You, know? you can do. I've done that sort of thing with with company plans that I've had here at Investment News. I wanted things that weren't available. You set up a parallel plan, a brokerage account, and you can invest in anything you want. I, obviously, I'm limited by the fact that I'm not a high net worth or accredited investor, but I can still I can buy individual stocks, bonds, anything. Mark, how is this going over with you know retirement plan critics or people like Barbara Roper, whom you speak with frequently? I, I mean, what you're saying to me is something I remember news. Mike Klaus, who was the old editor of Pensions and Investments, and I had a long talk about the fiduciary responsibility of a pension fund manager. And his point was, and this is the time of the divesting of tobacco stocks and the like, right? Mm -hmm. His point was the only responsibility that the pension fund manager has is to generate returns for the benefit of the employees that the pension fund is supposed to protect, right? And to have benefits for. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. having limits on what you can buy and what you can't buy does not necessarily work in the best interests of those people. It's really kind of naked, unbridled capitalism in, in a way. What are you hearing from people? The ESG proposal is drawing skepticism, if not outright opposition from both sides of the aisle, from investor advocates, but also from retirement industry trade groups, not just IRI, but the American Retirement Association came out right away. I talked with Brian Graff, the CEO of the American Retirement Association, who expressed alarm the day after the proposal was released and said, this is going to chill ESG investing and we don't think it's the right thing to do, meaning the proposal is not the right thing to do, not the right approach. So you've got those who normally would again, support what a Republican uh, uh, DOL is doing and those who normally wouldn't, both being against this. And even someone who's who's neutral, like a Morningstar, uh, wrote a, a comment letter saying that the proposal is going to harm and is misguided. It's, it's really widespread uh, opposition. Well, I got a couple of questions here. Um, Mark, if there's so much opposition, uh, does this thing have legs or is it going to go down in flames? Absolutely. No, no, it has legs because it's an administrative priority. It's something – it's not just uh, Eugene Scalia, the mm-hmm. labor secretary, but also I'm sure the White House that is skeptical of ESG investing. It's, it's, a, it's a Trump administration-wide type of stance, and the Department of Labor can push this right through. Mm-hmm. Uh, Congress uh, could halt it through what's called the Congressional Review Act – because it will go final uh, within 60 days, 60 legislative days of the end of the congressional session. So next January, assuming the Democrats take over the Senate, keep the House, and Joe Biden wins the White House, could do a CRA to uh, to, to rip it up. Mm-hmm. Although there's a risk there because if you do a CRA, it means you can't do a substantially similar rule. So if if the Democrats want to do anything ESG related, that might put a crimp in it. Mm -hmm. But um, this will – the Trump administration will approve this, and it will be up to Democrats in the future to undo it. All right. Well, getting past your fancy CRA words, but trying to intimidate me, I already have to look up that word pecuniary or whatever the hell that was. But uh, what (laughs) – what is this – It's a good old SAT word there, Benjamin. (laughs) Is this changing some some law that's in existence? Is it it revising something or is it a new rule? No. 
Well, it, it's it's revising the rule on investment selection, but the ESG part really is the first time that DOL is doing a, a rule making on something that had been handled in guidance and field bulletins before this. Mm-hmm. So so struggling with ESG investments in retirement accounts is something that spanned Republican and Democratic administrations for many years. And now the Trump DOL is saying, okay, we're, we're going to go, go beyond the field bulletins, we're going to be go beyond guidance, and we're going to propose this rule that we're putting out. It is, an, it is a modification of a, an existing rule, but this, this whole ESG piece is, is what's new. Sheffy, one thing I don't understand yeah. is that, you know, you and I have spoken about how Jay Clayton over the, you know, the head of the SEC right. and maybe the head of the uh, Southern District of New York at some point in the future, you know, he's been banging on and on and on for years about stuffing more uh, alternative investments and illiquid assets, which I consider to be high risk into people's uh, portfolios or allowing advisors to do that. Right. And uh, so on one hand, the administration is taking a strong stance about opening up a type of investment to more investors. And then on the other hand, they're saying, no, we want to close down a certain type of investment to those very same investors. So if you're supposed to believe in the free market of ideas and investments I don't understand why, if, if Jay Clayton wants illiquid alternatives, why Scalia wants uh, doesn't want much more liquid uh, ESG type of investments. It makes no sense to me. Well, you bring up a good point there about different approaches. I, I will say this. The SEC has also – is also weighing in on ESG, but it's doing it. I had a source, uh, George Rain, a, a partner at uh, Ropes and Gray, explain it this way to me, and I thought it was very helpful. Uh, the DOL basically is skeptical of ESG and wants to chill it. The SEC, on the other hand, sort of has an agnostic approach to ESG, and and it's focusing on disclosures by registered investment advisors regarding ESG investments. So the SEC has made the accuracy and adequacy of disclosures provided by our RIAs and exam priority this year. And they want to make sure that RIAs are delivering what they promise on ESG, but they're not going after it hammer and tong in the way that the DOL is. And I don't believe really either agency has addressed how all of this relates to alternative investments because DOL is also supportive of using more illiquid alternatives in retirement accounts because it put out guidance a few a couple months ago early june about uh allowing uh, target date funds to include a, a private equity fund mm-hmm. so right. uh so the, and and interestingly enough jay clayton was quoted in the dol's release on that proposal so dol and sec are in lockstep about introducing private funds to retirement accounts. They're very much in last right. step on that. They're a, lo- a little bit different in their approach to ESG. Yeah, this is my thinking on ESG. First of all, I'm a fan of ESG, not necessarily because of what the ES or G stands for, but because I think it's a legitimate data point and data sources that are increasingly being factored in to investments the way, you know, right on the balance sheet. It's it's something you can't deny. But I will say this, as the SEC is looking at, and as you referenced, Mark, 
there are people and companies that are jumping on this bandwagon because it's popular. And that's why the SEC seems to be taking a closer look at people that are claiming to be ESG or maybe products that are claiming to be ESG in something that is commonly known as greenwashing, just putting a, a green label on something to try and attract assets. But my other point in kind of along the lines of what the DOL is is proposing is what's wrong with evaluating uh, funds for investment based first on investment criteria? Because that's really what they're doing. They're not saying you can't have ESG funds. They're just saying the criteria has to be first risk adjusted performance, right? Right. But some comment letters we've seen already have said that the way the proposal is worded, it really makes it almost impossible for a plan fiduciary to justify an ESG investment. Mm-hmm. That That's something Morningstar said, and it's maybe not in so many words, but something that that's a theme you'll find in the Morningstar comment, for instance. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a matter of degree. And the and DOL is going after ESG to a degree that just might make planned fiduciaries say, yeah, I, we're not going to I do just it. don't see the ESG tidal wave and momentum being slowed by this. ESG is is real data and real criteria that cannot be dyna- denied. You you cannot ignore uh, the impact of something like, you know, its potential to have a larger carbon footprint or to be maybe susceptible to some right. kind of polluting lawsuit or something like that. These are things that have to be factored in. You can call them whatever you want, but it's risk and it's mm-hmm. it's analysis. And maybe if they took the ESG label off it, more people wouldn't even think about it how much they like it or wouldn't, you know, um, what, what's the outlook for this? What's, where do we, where do we go now if today's the last day for comment letters? Right. The, yes, the, uh, DOL has this on a fast track. They only allowed 30 days for comment on a, on a pretty complex proposal. So they want to move this along quickly. They might modify it based on the comments. At that point, they'd have to send the rule back to the office of management and budget for for approval, a final rule to the Office of Management and Budget. Uh, if OMB approves the final rule, and it will, it's just a matter of how long OMB takes, which could be 30 days, could be longer. It would go back to the DOL, and then the DOL would release the final rule. So at best, you're looking at a final rule coming out in, um, I would say the earliest would be September. Mm-hmm. It's probably more likely to be October. They'll get it in, I'm guessing, just before the election. Okay. Bruce, any final thoughts for uh, the Chefinator? No, that's great, Mark. Uh, I, th- I thought that was terrific. Thank you. Well, thank you, guys. I enjoyed the discussion. Thank you for being here, buddy. So, Bruce, what happened with Persh Kaplan Sterling this week? I know you had some some stuff on that. Persh Kaplan Sterling, which is a very a very different type of broker dealer, very different type of firm, had another one of its um, investment advisors for the second consecutive year involved in a big uh, million dollar plus settlement uh, with a client of that advisor for some malfeasance, and unfortunately, in this case. The advisor who was at the center of this, his name's Jim Casey, he was out of Palm Springs, California at a firm called Integrated Wealth Management. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, this gentleman committed suicide back in 2017 
apparently after he was caught taking money from clients and using it to fund movies or get involved in Hollywood somehow and the like. So wow. um, it's a pretty unfortunate situation. What is Perch Kaplan Sterling? I don't, I'm not even familiar with this firm. Well, they're a broker dealer and they're based out of Albany, New York. And they're a really unique firm in the whole breakaway broker business model. Mm-hmm. And that's when brokers leave typically the big wirehouses and try to set up their own RIAs. You know, if you're a billion dollar office out of Merrill Lynch or UBS, you will call Cheryl Penny at Dynasty. Mm-hmm. You'll call Purse Kaplan Sterling and say, hey, how do I set up my own RIA or Brian Hamburger, right? And Purse Kaplan Sterling has a piece of that business because even though these advisors are leaving Wall Street to set up their own RIAs, they still might have 10 or 15 or 20 percent of their business in brokerage accounts, right? Mm -hmm. That could be individual securities, that could be variable annuities, that could be private equity, and they need a broker-dealer, right, to keep those Mm -hmm. um, types of investments on. They don't go to a custodian. So Persh Kaplan inserts itself in the middle of that transaction, and that's where they've been really, really successful, helping breakaway brokers. But it seems like they've also run into you having brokers who've been unethical and have been involved in lawsuits and the like. And the latest one was this Jim Casey, who, as I previously said, he died in 2017 Mm -hmm. after committing suicide. He had been targeted in the spring of that year in a couple of lawsuits from clients alleging that he had done transactions that generated commissions in the hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, that were unnecessary and the like. He'd also been accused by another individual client of skimming money out of her account and using it for uh, for him to play around in Hollywood, right? Mm-hmm. So that was revealed this year. Purse Kaplan Sterling made a million and a half dollars settlement back to one of his clients. A year earlier, they paid um, a large settlement of, I think, around $9 million or so to a tribe, a, a Native American Indian tribe in Michigan Nine and a half million dollar related to the sale of alternative investments by one of their brokers, a Purse Kaplan Sterling broker. So mm. even though Casey had his own firm, he was a re- his own wealth management firm. He was a registered broker with Purse Kaplan Sterling. The same thing with that is a the same thing with the advisor in Michigan uh-huh. who was who sold tens of millions of dollars of REITs to this Indian tribe or this, excuse me, this Native American tribe and said, hey, I never charged you any commissions for these which was completely bogus. He charged lots and lots of dollars in commissions. So the oversight at the firm at Purse Kaplan, which I said, again, has this very prominent role in breakaway uh, brokers um, getting out of Wall Street. Um, the oversight, it seems, hasn't been great. Um, they came back to me and said, hey, arbitration settlements don't really reflect our compliance we're working on our compliance. We have good, solid <laughs> compliance at our firm okay. and the like. So um, that's that, – it's just, you know, it's it's always sad to re- watch advisors who are caught with their hand in the cookie jar. And in extreme cases, we have reported about advisors who have committed suicide mm-hmm. just two or three times off the top of my mind in the past when they get caught in these types of situations. 
I, just on a almost a side note, I do remember that Native American tribe in Michigan. It was it was the Chippewa tribe in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, which happens to be the same place I went to college at Central Michigan University. That's why that rings a bell. Oh my! But that is a giant settlement, nine point five million dollars. Wow. And that was on top of another. You know, they got fined by FINRA, I think, $3 million restitution to the tribe. Mm-hmm. And you can only imagine the legal fees that that incurs, et cetera, you know. So, so. what does this say about Purse Kaplan Sterling? I mean, is it, are they just, uh, I don't know well, what. Well, it makes it very curious, right? It, yeah. it, for me, it puts it on a list of broker dealers that have trouble supervising their brokers. Mm-hmm. These are huge types of settlements, right? Yeah. A million and a half dollar settlement for um, Casey to a California hospital pension plan, over $9 million to an Indian tribe in, in Michigan. Mm-hmm. They might, I think Persh Kaplan would say, oh, those are outside business activities. We weren't aware of those. Well, you should be aware of what your broker is doing. You can't be watching him all the time, but it's just an indication that Supervising brokers is a serious business, and Purse Kaplan Sterling has really failed in that regard, Mm -hmm. in these two examples at least. Seems like it. Jeff, I know you love value investing. (laughs) You love it so much, you call it the curse of value investing. Something little little odd happened here with um, Vanguard and one of its value investing funds. Just give us a little background regarding what is value investing and then what is the value curse and how does it apply, if at all, to Vanguard this week? Well, the value curse, as as I called it, uh, is um, the fact that value has been underperforming growth for a decade or more. Value is basically just looking at something that's undervalued and things that have been undervalued have been getting their clocks cleaned by by growth investments. Growth is tends to be more aggressive, more like technology stocks and stuff like that. But um, what happened at Vanguard but Warren was, Buffett is the great value investor, right? So we should uh, be buying stocks like the Warren Buffett. Yeah, you can if you want to invest like Warren Buffett and sit on things for decades and decades and live forever. It's, it's not always the way to win and it hasn't been the way to win for a while. But it's always been the strategy that's supposedly around the next corner. And unfortunately that corner hasn't come yet. But, um, but what happened with Vanguard was, and there's nothing wrong with having a value fund. Every company's got one. Every fund company's got a good value fund or two. Uh, what happened at Vanguard, they've got this 20 year old value fund. It's actively managed. And as you know, active management has been kind of suffering from index strategies for a long time because the indexes have been beating the, the active management in general. This particular value fund, it's a billion dollars in there, $1.1 billion. And um, Vanguard uh, sent a uh, proposal to shareholders of that fund to approve closing that fund and folding it into an index fund. That's pretty significant, closing an actively managed fund and folding it into an index fund. They're just giving up. It, kind of they are. They're kind of, you know, They're raising waving the, the flag, the, the flag there. Um, <laughs> well, <clears throat> because when this thing was launched, it initially did really well uh, coming right. out of the, the dot com bubble for the first few years. It dominated. Uh, it beat the index. If you're just going to compare it to the index that it's being folded into it, it soundly beat the index for a few years. And this has mostly been uh, using outsourced uh, or sub-advised asset management. But 
I think in 2010, they brought the management in-house and uh, they they have their own kind of quant team. It's quant, it's a quant strategy, but but still it's active management. Anyway, so over the past, I don't think the fund has beaten the index since 2014. And even the index isn't doing great because it's a value strategy. It's down 12% year to date. The index is, and but the index is still doing better at down 12% than the actual fund. So they're folding that $1 billion actively managed fund into a $77 billion index fund. The good news for investors is that the actively managed fund that was charging, I think, 22 basis points was just still pretty darn cheap, uh, but it's being folded into a fund, uh, an index fund that charges five basis points. So it's a it's a pretty big differential, uh, save people some money. But um, 15 years ago, these actively managed funds used to charge, what, 80, 100 basis points? Oh, yeah, points. yeah. It's... Uh, Fees have gone down, but remember, this is Vanguard. This is a five trillion. No, of course, that's the, that's the extreme is, example. But yeah, they in the are, old days, they are, the Putnam type of fund, right, for a value uh, right. mainstream value fund, would have charged you in that range. I mean, just the the expense ratios on these things. Yeah, are there just, are still funds that charge, and and you know, a lot of decent funds that charge over one percent. But remember, if right. you're talking Vanguard, you're always going to be talking basis points. That's the way yes. they roll over there. Um, and, you know, good on them for it. But this was just a case of it's 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 a little bit of egg on the face for Vanguard. You know, they, they put a lot of effort into this thing. They had this thing around for 20 years and they finally just said, you know, we can't beat this index. So we're going to make this thing an index fund and, you know, love us or leave us and hopefully don't leave us. Um, just to FYI, they do have an ETF that is actively managed. These two are mutual funds that we're talking about, but they do have an exchange traded right. fund that is, I think, around four basis points that is also uh, actively managed that uh, you could go to if you're, you know, you still want that active management value strategy, if you're still in love with value, if you still believe value is is coming. I mean, there's nothing wrong being diversified into value. It's just kind of like saying, you know, stocks do better than bonds, so I'm only going to invest in stocks. That's an extreme example, but there's nothing wrong with having a little bit of value in your portfolio, but it's just a, it's, it's just been a hurtful place to be for a long, long time. And this is just another example of the sadness, I guess, the rain, the dark cloud, whatever metaphor you got. <laughs> hey, let's talk about uh, COVID-19. Okay. Let's do it. Something interesting on uh, it. Uh, well, it's it's earnings season, as you know, for a whole variety of firms from the tech companies across the board. But uh, the next couple of days, we have a lot of the wealth management firms like Raymond James, Ameriprise, LPL Financial um, reporting. And I was listening to the call uh, for Raymond James uh, this morning, and they have a very um, staid and serious and calm group of senior executives down there. I've known them for a long time. They don't vary in tone that often, right? <laughs> they don't get too up. They don't get too down. All right. Uh, they're kind of as steady as they go kind of group of people group of executives, which is what you want, I think. Sort of like you, Bruce, right? Sort of like Unlike you. me. And and so, <laughs> uh, you know, which is what you want at the tiller of a, of a big brokerage firm with more than 8,000 advisors, right? Mm-hmm. They just said something very interesting about recruiting advisors in the time of COVID. And it's easier to – now they have – Raymond James has different business models 
which means that if you're an independent contractor broker like an LPL or an advisor group or a Satera person, you're not an employee of the brokerage firm, right? You yep. work as an independent contractor. They also have an employee business model, which is UBS and Merrill Lynch and Morgan Stanley. And they've been very – Raymond James has been very successful in recruiting from both those types of businesses. Mm-hmm. And uh, the employee broker generates, you know, 40 cents. He pockets 40 cents for every dollar of revenue he generates. The independent contractor broker gets about double that amount for every dollar of revenue that he or she generates. So it's a different pay scale too. Mm -hmm. What was interesting was that Paul Riley, the CEO, said it was easier to recruit independent contractor advisors in the last three months, April 1st to June 30th, than wirehouse employee type of advisors. And for a very basic reason, the independent contractor guys already have all their, their offices, their office and their desks and all their stuff are all set up. They already have their own practices, their own small wealth management firms. Uh-huh. And all you do is flip a switch. One day you're registered at LPL or Advisor Group or Cetera, and the next you're registered at uh, Raymond James. You don't have to move, in other words, right? You don't have to change your office, change your parking spot, anything like that. Makes sense. But they've but they've had a lot less success, it seems, recruiting those employee advisors who might work in downtown Atlanta at a big office for Morgan Stanley or UBS and uh, then would cross the street and work at the new office of Raymond James. Raymond James, like many other firms, has shut down or, or truncated its services for its offices, right? Uh-huh. So it can't it, – those types of advisors are not moving right now. They're delaying – their moves is what Riley said. Again, the CEO of, of Raymond James. I just thought that was interesting, kind of an unthought of consequence of this whole thing. Yeah, it, it is interesting. I, I mean, I know a lot of the movement in since we've all been in this, I've been calling it a lockdown because we're all working from our homes or wherever. Yep. But it is funny because we, you know, we do a lot of stories on M&A activity in the RIA space and breakaways yes. and stuff like that. And we always hear from these guys like Brian Hamburger at Market Council saying, oh, it's better than ever. Everything's going great. And then you talk to the RIA, right. uh, the, I'm sorry, the M&A folks, and they say, you know, kind of the same thing. There's been a slowdown, but we think we're going to be on course for, you know, another record second half even though things slowed down in the first half. It is interesting, though, just like everything else in financial services or everything else basically in the world, it, it's these adjustments to this new world order that we're living under. And you see certain areas that that kind of blossom and other areas not so much. Well, it's, 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 I, it's interesting for me for – a variety of reasons. One of them just being the the the, the nature of the thinking, the psychology, right? Mm-hmm. You don't want if you're the advisor, you don't want to take the risk, yeah, of crossing the street to that new office which has 40, 50, 75 people in it. It has other advisors, it has assistants, it has conference rooms, etc. But if you're a an independent contractor advisor uh, with LPL or Advisor Group or Cetera, you just go to your office. That's your practice, right? You don't have yeah. to worry about dealing with new people or having uh, plastic shields between people's desks or 
the appropriate amount of hand sanitizer for other people, right? You're just dealing right. with your office of five or six or seven or eight employees or other advisors, you know, so nothing really changes except for the broker dealer that you're clearing through. Yeah, it makes sense. And and that kind of gets to something we talked about a few weeks ago about, you know, just even the broader concept of changing jobs in the middle of all of this. Yes. The challenges and opportunities. Yes. And, I, you know, people are still finding opportunities uh, good for them, you know, because they're obviously still out there. Things are still moving forward, but you got to maybe take a different route to get there, though. Jeff, do you know what something I miss in the in the time of the COVID-19? Uh, well, knowing you, Bruce, I'm, I'm thinking it's happy hour uh, in <laughs> crowded bars. But it's not only happy hour. <laughs> OK, it's what comes with happy hour at industry conferences. Oh, yeah. And when you're bellying up to the bar at a good old conference, you know, at Pershing in June or LPL in August or uh-huh. Schwab in September or October, whatever. What do you get from the other attendees of the conference? What's the main thing that you and I get at these meetings? Oh, you get a lot of good information. You make contacts. You get, gossip. And you, you, you get the skinny on things. Yes. You yes. get some of the juiciest gossip in the business at those cocktail hours because everybody's been in those damn conference rooms since mm-hmm. seven or eight in the morning and it's four or five o'clock. Everybody, you know, misses being at home. They miss their 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 kids or whatever. Or maybe they don't. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're happy to be away from the family for a, a couple right. of days or so. And uh, you they you know people have a couple of drinks and they unwind. You know, so yeah. I used to be able to go to any of these meetings and uh, walk out of there with a with one, two, three stories sometimes. You know, just based on. What pe- people would just see me then come up to me and say, hey, did you hear today that so-and-so quit? We, I know we all miss the industry meetings. We all miss being on the road to whatever extent we'd like to be on the road. But just an offshoot of that is is this gossip. And particularly in the M&A space, as you say, or in the mm-hmm. big hires and fires, these industry meetings provided – a lot of that background for guys like you and me. Well, let me ask you, Bruce, because on that note, do you find that you're getting less information because of the way that we're not having face-to-face meetings anymore? Because obviously there's other ways to connect with people and the whole industry is adapting to that. But do you find you get the same kind of tips and gossip without the the face-to-face? I mean, face-to-face is always easier. It's more casual. It's you know, especially if you got a couple of cocktails. Um, but is it the same as far as the kind of the scoops and tips you're getting? I'm getting on any week any number of text messages from sources. And it's more about the pandemic mm-hmm. than big industry news. It's more about mm-hmm. how the pandemic is affecting their practice or how the broker dealer is mandating they do something at their practice or the services that the broker dealer is providing for them. It's, it's really seems like people have uh, hunkered down mm-hmm. and just focused on their practice and how do they make the rest of the office, <clears throat> excuse me, right. You know, safe, secure uh, for their other advisors and for their employees. You know, that's what they're, these top advisors, you know, run big branches are the kinds of people I try to talk to. 
and that's what they're really concerned about as well as their clients, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, generally go to a lot of conferences and I, I get a lot of stuff out of them as you do. But what I like about the way, and we've talked about this in the past is, is the way that the industry is adapting with all these webinars. And I mean, there was a, a webinar just before this earlier today by Vanguard where they had the CEO, Tim Buckley talking I mean, this isn't something that you get access to on a regular basis, but right. he was there. He's taking questions. I mean, it's it, it, so in a lot of ways, these these companies, they still want to get these words out. They still want to get in front of financial advisors and oftentimes the media. And they do things that they weren't doing in the past. And to me, that's better than nothing. And as a, you know, a devout germaphobe like me, it's uh, it's often better than before because I don't have to shake people's hands and stand really close to them and stuff like that. But, uh, <laughs> but I can still get a lot of the information, but it's not, you're right. It's not, I'm joking. It's not face to face. It's not two people talking together. It's different. And I don't know, just like everything else that have, has come out of this, it seems like the, you know, they're, the water's going to find the, the gap to flow through and we'll, this information will, will find a way to get to people like us, hopefully. Industry gossip, I miss it. <laughs> Duly noted. Well, that was a great podcast, Jeff. I, I think we did it again. Success, victory. So, this has been the Investment News Podcast. If it's Monday, you're going to find another episode. And you can listen to it at investmentnews.com, Apple. Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. We're always looking for reviews or feedback, and you can send it to us over Twitter. The Professor Benjamin, his Twitter handle is at Benji Ryder, and me, I'm Bruce Kelly. You can find me at, at BD News Guy. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our special guest, Mark Sheff, and our fabulous producer, Stephen Lamb. And we'll be talking to you next week.